welcome on Priscilla Walker. Thank you for coming on. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's amazing to be recording here in the Palisade Historical Museum. Yes. And you're the woman behind the curtain. Well, I'm the founding chairman, and it's been an interesting experience, far more than I think any of us ever thought would happen at the beginning. We started as a committee, a subcommittee of the Chamber of Commerce, and I kept going, and I met Harry Talbot, who was also on our board of directors. And um, one day at one of the meetings, the chamber leader, Leif Johnson, just handed me the gavel. <laughs> just at random? Yeah. You didn't want this job or well, want to I, pursue this? Well, I apparently have leadership uh, skills that are... <laughs> <laughs> and he was busy. I mean, he was in charge of the chamber, and so this was just a subcommittee. But Well, to me, it sounds like you were the woman for the job because we were just talking before we came on, and I'd love it for you to repeat what your motto is, throw nothing away. Was that it? Yeah, don't throw anything away. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I've tried that strategy before, and my closet fills up really quick. Ooh, that's a problem. So you consider yourself a nostalgic person? Well, yes. I mean, my family bought property here in 1893 and have raised peaches on the 40 acres the family has, my dad, and and then now it's leased to Cocopelli. But there have been peaches on that property for 130 years. Wow. (laughs) What made your family move here? They were in Redstone, um, Leadville, the silver mining. He came from Iowa to Leadville and silver mining. And then the Money, the silver was demonetized in 1893, which meant the price between gold and silver changed. And all of the silver mines in Colorado closed. And so I don't know if that was part of the reason or he'd been here before and he'd said, oh, gee, when it has irrigation, I'll come back. And so I think that was the key thing is that there was irrigation starting in 1883 with the Grand Valley Canal, although originally they had to haul the water from the river to the orchards, daylight to dusk every day during the growing season because it you know, they would haul the water from the river. Haul the water in barrels from the, in a horse and buggy. Really? Yeah. Wow. That I must mean, have been really hard work. That's one one of the things that uh, you said we want to talk about are things that people don't know. And the complexity of the irrigation system is is huge. I mean, people turn on the faucet and expect it to work. Totally. But, you know, the well, we've written a book, The History of Irrigation, about the failed attempts as well as the successful one. I don't think we live in the Grand Valley without the roller dam, the government Highline Canal, Indebec Canyon, the Grand River Diversion Dam. I mean, that is just a secret. It supplies five canals with irrigation water that make Palisade peaches and everything else possible, not to mention in Grand Junction, the lawns. <laughs> yes, yes. What year did that happen? What year did the irrigation come in? 1880? 1883, the Grand okay. Valley Canal was built and it went to Fruta, where they thought they were going to raise fruit. And what happened was we have something called the Million Dollar Wind, which comes from Debec Canyon, that prevents the spring frost. It warms Palisade and the heat from the Palisades west to Mount Garfield. And west of that, the valley spreads out and the warming stops. So by 1885, I mean, the the Indians were removed in 1881. They built the canal in 1883. By 1885, 
Harlow in Rapid Creek had a ton of peaches and everyone else was frozen out. And so that's why the we're the seventh largest growing uh, peach growing state in the nation. And it's virtually all in the 81526 zip code. Colorado is seventh. Colorado, the state okay. of Colorado. Number one, Georgia, California. California, Georgia's third. Um, so like, Georgia has just done a good job of marketing. Their, yeah. Their cell is the peach growing area. Although this year they are absolutely totally frozen. Really? Uh-huh. Uh, do you remember the um, frozen fountains in New Orleans? I uh, didn't see that. In, well, it I got the... That. It got the trees in Georgia. So, and my thought, this is the second time in a handful of years that they have frozen out. I'm thinking that once you have a Palisade peach, you will never go back. Not that you're biased or anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> the Nuggets are playing the heat from Florida, and the Colorado treasurer has bet the Florida treasurer Palisade peaches if the Nuggets win. Although I read um, something, variation of that, that it's really going to be Pueblo chilies or whatever those are, because Palisade will not be producing peaches until at least the first part of July. Yeah, it'll be too long. But who made the bet? The, go the two governors? Uh, they're uh, the treasurers, the, the state treasurers. treasurers. Okay. And if the heat win, the treasurer gets golf grouper or something. Golf grouper. <laughs> And originally it was going to be Palisade peaches, but now it's going to be Pueblo chiles. Yeah, or it's another. I'm. I'm not a. We don't raise chilies, so I'm not knowledgeable. But it's. Is. It's whatever. It's uh, actually it's a state crop. Uh, you know, we have state birds and. What's the state crop of Colorado? Well, there are several. We have a state cactus. Actually, that's an interesting story. Several years ago. There was a 10-year-old who decided that Palisade peaches should be the state fruit. And it was voted down in the state senator house because the cantaloupe growers, the melon growers on the eastern slope, thought that should be the state fruit. But melons are not fruit. They're vegetables. So, And we could be the state stone fruit or something. But, I mean, if you check with the chamber for... They interview people and find out why people come to the Grand Valley. When I was on the Palisade Chamber years ago, when we started the Historical Society, number one reason was Palisade peaches. That's why people came to the Grand Valley. Number two was the wineries. Now, the more recent uh, surveys, wineries are number one. I want to go back a little bit. When did... Your grand, that was your grandfather, right, who came and uh -huh. said, once they have irrigation, we should come back. Mm -hmm. He saw the potential in this valley. Everybody mm -hmm. did. Were they seeing what the Indians were growing and thinking, oh, we can do this? How did they come no. about with this um, idea? The Ute Indians are hunter-gatherers. They did not farm. They did not grow things. They didn't farm at all? No. Oh, I thought they... They hunted on the mesa and farmed in the valley. They hunted on the mesa. But actually, I've heard a new theory about... Uh, <laughs> we're always looking for the right story. But of I've course. heard an interesting theory about why the Utes did not settle here is because they thought the valley was cursed because it had no... Nothing was growing. I mean, this is a desert. But I, I think really it was, you know, the Mormons had come and they were farming in Utah by diverting 
water into irrigation canals. I really think that was the, we don't have the name of the person who said, oh, let's do irrigation. <laughs> but obviously there were people who had been in other parts of the country where more rain falls, but that irrigation was something that was um, successful. So it was a, a kind of a group think. What was in the valley back then before there was really settlements here vegetation-wise? Was it all the junipers that are, we see on the book cliffs and yeah. things like that? Yeah. All just spread throughout the valley yeah. here? So uh-huh. kind of similar terrain is up on yeah. top of the book cliffs? Yep. And then they just cleared or, it all out? Or west of Mac. Okay, or west of Mac. Yeah. yeah. I and mean, they that's... just cleared it all out? Yeah. Okay. And put in the irrigation. Curtis Martin has written a wonderful book about the Ute Indians in Colorado, in western Colorado. We have copies available in the in the History Museum if people are interested. But they would, they'd move around. And it wasn't like they avoided here, I think. But it's just this was, again, desolate and hard to, hard to grow things. I want to talk about the museum and what people can experience when we're here and go through all that. But I want to get back to you for a second because I'm interested in your motto and just how you got into history and taking up this crusade because I know it's been a lot of work for you. So your motto is don't throw anything away. Tell me about your attic. Is it just completely stuffed? Are you... Oh, yeah. For me, I... I'm very nostalgic. I uh-huh. love to save pictures. I love to have pictures mm-hmm. from different periods of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandparents recently passed away. I've been trying oh. to get my hands on small artifacts from them. Family things. I'm very, it brings me a lot of comfort to know that mm-hmm. I have them, even mm-hmm. though I wonder when I'll look at them. <laughs> yes. I just figure there'll be some time in the future that I'll be happy that yeah. I have them. Uh, imagine showing my kids or something like that. And as I go through my parents' life and my grandparents' life, cleaning out childhood homes and things, I'm always finding myself wishing, oh, I wish you guys took more photos when you were young or Mm -hmm. when you were first married. I'd love to see what you looked like and what you were doing. And they tell stories, of course, but to have the, Mm -hmm. the evidence would be really cool. So I think my crusade is similar to that. I just imagine somebody caring 50 years from now Mm -hmm. and the ego in me wants to preserve myself, I guess. What's your take on it? Photos, huge. Um, Yes, we live in the house my grandparents built in 1904, so there's five generations of stuff. Um, And photos are one thing, uh, and we probably have 9,000 photos that people have given us. We just got some wonderful photos that were sent to the chamber 30 years ago (laughs) that have been in somebody's attic, and they finally shared them with us. And they're, we used them like that week in a program <laughs> because they were pictures of the Orchard Mesa Irrigation District literally before it was operating in 1910. And uh, they're wonderful photos. And, you know, initially, that's exactly what we did. Well, the, there was no historical society. So we went to the chamber and the Lions Club and the Women's Club and the library which had historic things. And just said, give me what you got. And they gave them to us. They shared a lot of the, yeah. And just whatever they had. Oh, a couple boxes in the attic, go mm-hmm. for it. And you guys took mm-hmm. the time to go through all this mm-hmm. and map it all out. Mm-hmm. What drove you to do this? Sounds like just your personal interest in history or was it preserving Palisade? Uh, preserving Palisade. I mean, I think people should be, anybody who 
lives, works, or visits here should learn about Palisade history and be proud, especially the people who live here. Because I think even tourists would rather visit a place that people are happy and excited about uh, the past and not making the mistakes that people in the past have. We're hearing a lot of that, that the younger generation, um, like the millennials or maybe even younger, the chamber does, um, or the tab does surveys of who comes to Palisade. And they're finding that the younger ones want to know more about what's here and what's the history. I mean, I think that's exciting. The- For me as a traveler, it's imperative. Yeah. Now, it has to be done the right way. And the problem with history is that everyone is different in how they want to yes. consume it, from my yeah. experience. Yeah. When you get too much of it or mm-hmm. you it doesn't encapture you in the beginning, mm-hmm. then it just loses you. Yes. I just make the analogy of the tour guide standing in front of a building talking to a group and half the people are checked out because they mm-hmm. they lost they missed the first part it kind of lost on them some people are right up front fully engaged so a prior interest is is helpful but yeah. i think it's really important to connect to the sense of place and where you are because it of course it's about learning about your mistakes there is that aspect of history but for me it's about bringing a value to your experience. Why is where I am special? Mm-hmm. And what yes. can I learn about it to make it feel, to make the experience feel richer? Mm-hmm. If you walk into a, a building, you don't know anything about it. You're mm-hmm. not connecting with it. You're mm-hmm. there. If you know, oh, I'm walking into this old peach depot, right? It just, there's such a more of a connection it, yes. to it. And you feel like, wow, okay, this, this was something or is mm-hmm. something. And what's it going to be next? Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important. I'm often curious, that's something you raised, how do you get, I'm surprised to hear younger people are interested in the history. Um, I was too. I mean, it was a tab meeting that I went to a few months ago, and the advertising agency brought that up, and I thought, wow. But one of the first things we did, because the town board at the time felt that nothing important had happened before they moved here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so the first thing we did was a coloring book for third graders at Taylor. We thought, okay, the adults aren't interested, but we'll we'll start with kids. And so for the last dozen years, more than a dozen years, we've uh, um, had this coloring book, which the wonderful second and third grade teachers at Taylor Elementary use. It's not something that District 51 would approve because it's, it's not something that's taught in all the schools. It's only the ones where the teacher has a Palisade connection. And as a matter of fact, we've been in eight elementary schools. But we've started in Palisade at Taylor, and it's been consistent. When the senior, the Peach Queen Court comes, and they're seniors, they remember the coloring book. Really? We show up with, I mean, they get the coloring book. The Rotary Club has funded this. We get the coloring book to them so they have time to look. It's 20 pages and they can color and it's got, you know, history. And uh, they can ask questions or, or whatever. And then we show up, the couple of volunteers and myself, we show up with a picking sack, a pair of stilts, and a piece of coal to answer questions and add to the illustrations that are about Palisade history. And my thought has always been that Palisade's history is unique because we've been growing peaches, the best in the world, for the last 130 years. Fruta, 
they started with fruit, but then it was mostly apples because the peaches were frozen. So uh, in 1923, the Department of Agriculture made everybody tear out their apple trees because of coddling moth. So then they went to sugar beets, and then they went to gilsonite, and now th- and then they went to dinosaurs, and now they're in bicycles. <laughs> so ours has been consistent, which people who move here, you know, it's boring because it's 130 years old. You know, what's new? Oh, interesting. So maybe, yeah, there's an aspect of history where if it's evolving, it's interesting. And if it's, okay, mm-hmm. they've been doing the same thing for that long, mm-hmm. hung-ho, there's a bit of a... But you could look at it the other way and say, well, they've they perfected this craft. I think Palisade is changing a lot. I think we're at a very unique time in Palisades history right now. They may look back in 50 years and say, wow, what a turning point that Mm -hmm. decade was Mm -hmm. from peaches and wine now coming in. Mm -hmm. Who knows what the future holds? It's what worries me is the development. You know, there was the one proposed last year that was just so out of context for the town. And, you know, that worries me, the the development, because this is such a wonderful place. The age of the fruit growers is getting to the point if they don't have, I mean, we don't have another generation in my family that wants to uh, grow fruit. And those people historically have tended to sell and subdivide and it becomes development. I mean, Loveland is a place where they used to have cherry trees. They grew the best cherries in the state. In Loveland? It's now a uh, commuter you know, I mean, it's a, it's a suburb. It's, it's all residential. There are no oranges in Orange County, California. Right. Florida is about to lose because of the greening. There's going to be no more citrus coming from Florida. You know, agriculture is such a, nobody understands it. They think their food comes from Safeway and appreciating what it takes to grow really good food or, you know, uh, farm, uh, whatever, is not something that is widely understood or appreciated. I mean, I was just at the Grand Junction City Council about making the ditch banks into bicycle trails and pedestrian paths. They don't understand this is a workplace. This is where we grow food and we have to have uh, you know, the safety uh, of being able to use the land without it being stolen or destroyed. They yeah. just didn't understand that. They it was seven to, to zip. Magic. Yeah. I mean, I get that their motivation is they want safe places for people to ride bikes and, you know, walk, but the ditch bank should not be that place. How do you think we're doing here in Palisade in terms of preserving our history? Because that development project you mentioned got shut down. We well, now it's have a at museum. least a moratorium. Oh, um, we had the moratorium. Mm-hmm. I know we've had some development with the old gym. Now it's a health center. So we've had some changes. Mm-hmm. A lot of them have been really positive. How do you think we're doing as a town overall preserving the history? And what do we have left to accomplish? When they did the comprehensive plan last year, I was stunned, uh, pleasantly surprised and stunned how much they included history. And they said, I mean, the presentation to the town board, I was there, and advertising group that put it together, the the professionals from the from Fort Collins, the first thing they said was how important history is to Palisade. And I'm like... <laughs> Score. 
Yes. <laughs> Somebody does listen to you after all. Yeah, I was stunned. <laughs> <laughs> so what did that entail? So what did the plan say? What does it mean to preserve that history? Is it just, is getting a museum like this enough? Does it mean that we want to keep the peaches and, and does wine factor into that? How do we move forward, but also stay true to what we mm -hmm. are? How, how do you balance that? I think it's for the time being that they're not thrilled about just developing anything that the developments have got to fit with with Palisade. And people move here because of the open space, the orchards, the, you know, when you're riding your bicycle, you do not want to ride it through a subdivision. <laughs> you just don't. But riding in, I mean, I'm always waving as I work on my, the 125-year-old rose bushes that my grandmother planted on May 13th, 1898. And I'm, I'm working on them. I'm waving to the the carriages and the pally tour and pedicab and and the bicycles tell me that again your grandmother planted these rose bushes 125 years ago and mm -hmm. you still tend them today yeah that's amazing i what know a gift. whoever lives in the house next i'm sure they're going to tear it down and tear out the rose bushes i, mean, I hope not there <laughs> you got to leave them a note and say hey look this is what you got here well i can tell you about some really wonderful rose gardens that were around town that are not there anymore really oh they are there it's are a, a couple lot of work. first street right they're oh, beautiful the verazin winery has done they're into roses they're not hybrid perpetuals like my 1898 version but they have wonderful roses in the gardens and every all the roses are doing so well they were affected by the 2019 the freeze that we had and so they've had some uh, kind of tough years but this year oh they just can't bloom enough yeah everything is popping just because of the wet winter and spring oh, that we yeah. had it's really amazing you can't overwater roses you cannot no Really? See, I never water my rose bushes and they seem <gasps> to just do fine. I mean, never is a strong word, but <laughs> I kind of, especially this spring, I feel like I haven't done much to them. And here they are yeah. cruising, looking really yeah. good and bloom yeah. after bloom after bloom. But you recommend watering them. Mm -hmm. Like, do you feel nervous? Like I would feel really nervous if I was taking care of plants that old because so many people relate to the fact that you just kill house plants and trees die <laughs> and getting them going. What a responsibility. How do, does that make you feel? Well, they have a deep root system. And I've been assured I have a friend who reads rose books. And he came and helped and, and uh, took some uh, plants back to California. And he was pretty confident that the, the roots were pretty hardy that it would take a lot to kill them. Okay. So you are literally preserving every aspect of Palisade history down to the rose bushes in your yard. <laughs> That's a cool way to look at it, though. Everything we do and everything we touch in town, presumably, if we take care of it well, it's going to last. Yeah. And so history is almost a lifestyle. You want to continue to preserve things mm -hmm. for the next generation. Mm -hmm. So how do you think we're doing? What what excites you about the next couple of years? I mean, this museum is amazing. Oh, yeah. Have, have you gotten good reception? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, we had 700 people the first year, which opened three or four days a week, I think, is and, and without a big... We don't buy a lot of advertising. It's Well, we have social media and the website and word of mouth, and we do our events. Um, this last year and a half, we've done monthly events at the Ordinary Fellow Winery, and we promote the 
the museum. Although we've uh, recently revised the sign-in sheets and asked, well, how did you hear about us? And a lot of it is drive-by, but um, occasionally they'll say Facebook or the newsletters or, uh, I mean, I think we've done a, it's low budget, but a pretty good job of marketing to the people who are receptive. And, and we started with, uh, we've done a lot of programs with the schools. Our coal mining and irrigation textbook, our uh, booklets are used as textbooks at Palisade High School. In fact, that's a wonderful story. So the coloring book, elementary, get them young. And then for the ones that are... <laughs> indoctrination. Indoctrination. Yes. Well, I'm told that when you're a senior and you apply for financial aid, that you put what you want to study. And Palisade High School seniors this year want to study history more than all of the other schools combined. Wow. So I think that's... <laughs> that is a hat tip to you if I've ever heard Don't one. You think? That's amazing. <laughs> well, congratulations. Yeah. I wonder what... What answers were previously? I'm sure just see we don't rock know. star CEO whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What? And in fact, I wanted to say one of the things that motivated me was when you looked 14 years ago when you looked at history, Palisade history was ignored. Again, maybe because it's so unique, or it's not Grand Junction, it's not Fruta, it's it's unique to Palisade. The irrigation. We had a dozen coal mines. That's one of the things that people come here and say, oh, I didn't know that. We had a dozen coal mines in the first half of the 20th century, and then we got natural gas. So the home uh, furnaces that were powered by coal converted to natural gas. We had a dozen coal mines here in Palisade? In Palisade. A dozen? A dozen. Where are they? Up Rapid Creek. There were a whole bunch of them. There's two, um, four on the Palisade, the Palisades. There were a couple more up on East Orchard Mesa. So I see the one on the book cliffs. There's one right by Mount Garfield hike, right? If you were to go the up there line. and you go left for the hike, but yep. it's on the right and it's all that black. Mm -hmm. So that's just all coal remnants yep. that are dropped yep. and scraped and stained onto the, the Gearhart mine. Yep. And they used to have a railroad track that came down there? Yes, all the way to the railroad down what is that, 37 and 110th Road? 30, okay. No, 36 and 110th. It went all the way to the railroad. And they would fill the carts with coal, send mm -hmm. it down the roller coaster. Yep. It would arrive at the rail yard mm -hmm. and unload it. Now, were any peaches growing during that time? Oh, yeah. Oh, there was. I mean, okay. that was the economy, was peaches and coal. And what year is this? This is the, end of the 1800s? 1890s or 1920s. Okay. I mean... Peaches um, and coal. Peaches and coal. I just imagine some sweaty, stained coal, like with dirty fingers, eating a fresh peach, you know? Um, probably great pictures of those. Uh, one of the things that we've got are picture, or well, one of the things we know is that in the summer, they, uh, the workers would, or the um, orchards would work on their peaches. And in the winter, they'd mine coal because that's when you needed coal for heat. But the railroad loved us. The railroad came through Palisade in 1890. Early on, it was just going to go west from Newcastle to Utah. But the DNRG and the Midland Railroads had gone broke getting to Aspen for the silver mining. And so they joined forces, and so the Rio Grand Junction came through Palisade to Grand Junction. There was already a railroad from Montrose 
to Grand Junction. The DNRGW had done that. And we wrote the book with Matt Darling, who's the curator of the Cross Orchards and a brain, uh, real fan. But um, he thinks Palisade would have at least been a spur had that not happened because we, we shipped millions of peaches in refrigerated boxcars from, from literally 1890 to 1975. All they were initially ice that was frozen in Grand Lake. We have a video about this. We, the ice was frozen in Grand Lake and other places and brought to Grand Junction and stored in a place that had five-foot cement walls and floors so it didn't melt. And then they'd load the ice into the boxcars. Well, they'd put the peaches in the boxcars and then go back and get the ice and then ship them to the Midwest. Wait, okay, hold on, slow down. So you're <laughs> telling me that at this time before refrigeration, they would freeze in yes. Grand Lake, like outdoor, the lake would freeze. They would harvest this ice, mm-hmm. load it in, transport mm-hmm. it here, somehow keeping it solid. Mm-hmm. We would store it and then chip it off to put it into the peach cars. Yes, that's amazing. Yeah. When you think about that, like how we complain about sending an email today or something, <laughs> the amount of work that was oh, to figure that out yes. logistically yeah. is unbelievable Stunning. to me. And that all happened at the train depot downtown, right? So where was this loading? Was that because the, no, the, the ordinary the, fellow building has all those historical photos in yes. it? Is that where it happened? On both sides. The south side was originally the Grand Junction Fruit Growers Association. The north side was, um, in later years, the United Fruit Growers Association. And that's where the growers would bring the peaches that they had packed or in bushels, and they would get inspected and then loaded into the into the boxcars. The marketing cooperatives were what um, allowed the growers to work together, and they figured out the shipping and the railroad and, and marketing. And the marketing order got turned over in the 1990s, and so now the growers have to sell, you know, you're not just growing the fruit, you're also contacting all of the people, uh, the possible... They have to do their own distribution and uh, sales. Sales. Why did it break apart? It sold as a valley prior to 1990. Everybody was kind of... Well, the marketing cooperatives were the major. Um, they'd ship 90 plus percentage of so the So the peaches. farmers would sell to that cooperative in yep. a way, and then they would take care of selling yep. it from there. Why did that break down? The new guys moving in wanted to do it differently. Historically, that was not interesting to them. And so the marketing order insisted that the fruit be number one quality, no blemishes and a certain size. The new growers wanted to come in and sell all their fruit. I mean, instead of throwing away half the fruit because it didn't meet the number one quality, they wanted to sell blemished and smaller peaches. And they couldn't do that with the marketing cooperative, so they voted it out. I find it hard to believe they would in the past just throw away the secondary pieces. Oh, they would sell yes. them locally or they would throw them out. The, uh, culls. Culls? Culls. They were culled out. I don't know what that means. Um, let's see. C-U-L-L. Okay. They were just taken away. Uh, the Riverbend Park had deep trenches and they would throw the peaches in there and then cover them up. Are you serious? It's like a peach grave? Really? Mm-hmm. Where in Riverbend? Kind of where the golf course is. And where the Frisbee golf course yeah, is and everything. Uh-huh. 
Are you? Wow, I had no idea. That's amazing. So, how many? It's a peach graveyard, River Bend, essentially, and they would just—they could. There was no other use for them. No. No one would want to eat them locally. We just had too many. I guess there weren't that many people here. Yeah, and there weren't fruit stands when I was growing up. I mean, we shipped all of our peaches through the United to wherever they sold them. People would sometimes come to the packing shed and and go through the cull bin and pick out things that what was sh- what was culls was anything that was too ripe or blemished or too small. So they'd sort through the cull bin and and just take them. Wow. So Riverbend also had a accommodation facility, right, for um, workers? Uh, the CCC camp. Well, two actually. In 1935, the Civilian Conservation Corps built a CCC camp to house, it was the Depression, and there were a lot of men out of work, and they came here and did projects, and we have an album from one of the guys that was in the CCC camp, so we have all... 125 pictures from 1939 of Palisade and what the CCC camp was doing. Wow. And another, you know, he passed away and the family contacted the chamber and sent the album to us. And then we got it from the chamber. (laughs) But it's, it's a priceless album of what the what it looked like. And what were they here for, to work in the orchards? And they also lined the High Line Canal with concrete and built the walls at the Orchard Mesa Irrigation District. They worked with the uh, CCC camps in the monument, uh, doing the monument, and wherever else needed to be helped. How many people were living down there? 250. 250? In about five barracks. And there were other CCC camps in the, in the, and this was a Bureau of Reclamation CCC camp. And really it was run by the army. I mean, there were sergeants and they had, or lieutenants and. They do projects all over the country, right? They CCC, did, yes. Yeah. yeah. And then in World War II, all the CCC guys signed up, went to the army. And so in 1944, we had German prisoners of war that came to pick peaches because all of our young men were off fighting the war. In fact, there's a wonderful story. Danny Bracken had an orchard on Orchard Mesa, but he was in the army and he was a prisoner in Germany while the German prisoners were picking peaches in his orchard. Oh my God, really? (laughs) Yeah. That's kind of funny. Was Um, he like picking beer hops over there or something um, for them. I don't he wasn't there very long and okay. I don't think they um, entertained American prisoners very um, I would imagine hospitably that. yeah I would imagine that we were nice to them in fact that's one of the unique things about Palisade there was a teacher in Grand Junction High School that was just sure that the stories she'd heard about how they were mistreated so we did a class and and gave them peaches and ice cream because it was in September and the next time, there, the next week, I got Harry Talbot and Jerry Kendrick and Nancy Taylor, who had worked with the German prisoners in 1944 and 1945. And they talked about, you know, I mean, we don't care what you are. <laughs> Prisoner, alien, whatever. If you'll pick our peaches, we love you. <laughs> we had German prisoners of World War II here in Palisade, staying at Riverbend Park, picking peaches. Yes. Well, so, how did that work? How did that come to be? Was that a national prison program for well, the, prisoners of war? There were like 2,500 of them up by Fort Collins, and they sent us 250 for, well, harvest was, we all we had were 
standard Alberta peaches. So harvest was three weeks in August. It's not like now where we have maybe 40 varieties. So you can get peaches from June to October. Um, this year it might be made July to November, but you know, um, so we need fewer workers, but over a longer period. I mean, so it, back in the day, it was a shorter peach season yeah, because there was only one varietal. Yeah. What was that varietal again? Standard Alberta. Standard Alberta. The only fruit stand I know that grows them is at McLean's just up the road. They still have the original. They still have standard Albertas. Do they promote themselves for having that? Um, they should. That seems like a great historical yeah. selling point that yeah. this was the original varietal of Palisade and here it is. And Although interestingly, we've now gotten some new uh, letters from a nursery to a Palisade family that sold their, their stock, the Funks, that in the 50s, it was like, wait a minute, you need to or order something besides just standard Alberta because people's tastes are changing and they want color. Standard Albertas had a lot of fuzz and they were green until they were almost ripe. <laughs> and what people in the stores want was red and they wanted different varieties. And so now we have... 40 varieties. Yeah. 400 well, I, or 40? I think there's 200. I mean, we don't have them all, but in fact, I don't even know we've got more than a dozen varieties on our orchard that Cocapelli does alone, starting with PF5D Big. That's the first peach variety that gets ripe in <laughs> July. Or So I'm familiar with varietals, obviously, from apples, yeah. bananas, things like that, and we can really wine. taste the <laughs> wine. Exactly. We can really taste the difference in them, yeah. right? I, don't, I guess I'm just not familiar enough with the peach to... If you put them in front of me, would I be able to taste distinct differences between each varietal? Um, well, my father said all Palisade peaches are good, some are better. Yeah, fair enough. So um, <laughs> I think, yes, there are differences. Uh, my husband, who grew up in Illinois, used to wait for the standard Albertas because he didn't think any of them tasted as good. I mean, I think they're all good, but yes, there are there are some differences. I'm going to seek that one out this summer to try the original varietal. Okay. I think that's a really cool okay. story. What was Palisade like back when it was first being developed when you had the coal and the peaches? Was downtown where it is now today yes. it was yeah was this your standard wild west town with brothels and bars what was the vibe no i think it was very focused on it was not the wild west and palisade was early to adopt prohibition they adopted prohibition in 1908 1908 yeah there were maybe three saloons Isn't from that 19... 20 years before prohibition actually started or 15 yeah it 1920 was... it started right I, I, yeah. or 18 yeah Can't it remember. was but um so i do guided walking tours and mine i've named fire and brimstone and i talk about things that burned in churches i mean there were seven or eight churches in palisade education was important we had schools in 1893. Uh, the first one was 1893. Another one was 1900. 1910, the one they just torn down was 1925. I mean, schools were important and, and churches. I mean, these were Christian, hardworking people for the most part. <laughs> All right. So it wasn't like we hear with some of the gold rush towns and the silver towns where, because miners were traditionally looking for entertainment, it sounds like. Yeah. What did they do for fun? 
worked in the orchards in the summer and mined all winter. I don't, you know, I you just didn't have that rowdy reputation here. That's not come up as something that was um, prevalent. prevalent. Okay, it sounds like this museum is kind of if you build it, they will come in the sense that once you announce plans for it, people have now started to find things in their home mm-hmm. and say, "Hey, look at this. Yeah. This might work for your museum." Is there anything? that super sticks out or that has surprised you of like, wow, I didn't know about this. Crazy. You found this. The, f- the photos, you know? Oh, so just sort of the mm-hmm. pictures of life in the coal yeah. mine. And I think maybe the other thing is, I mean, I've been to Aspen and, you know, silver mining and, and, and stuff. And those were, they were bigger for one thing, it would more bigger uh, seams and stuff. And so single guys would come and live in, barracks or live in a boarding house and those would be the ones that I think are what you're talking about I mean my grandfather lived in uh, Leadville came for the silver mining and worked at a bar and he took a gun away from a guy who was being a bad guy but I think the brothels and the those kinds of things were far more prevalent in in bigger towns. Yeah, fair enough. I was just curious if there was something that someone had donated because, I mean, you have a picture of a, the the moon landing behind you, so I feel oh. like you guys have gotten some pretty incredible stuff donated to you. Well, um, Wayne Aspinall out? grew up in Palisade. Now explain who Wayne Aspinall is. He was our congressman know. from nineteen. 19- 1949 to 1973, 12 terms in the U.S. Representative House District. Before that, he was a teacher, he was a lawyer, and he was the chairman of the Interior House, uh, the House Interior Committee that is responsible for most of the the water storage uh, projects. Think like Powell, and that list right there, you can read off a whole bunch more, and there's pictures of them up here. So he grew up, and he was a very well, just important congressman. He passed a thousand bills and they all passed because he took the time to work with his contemporaries to figure out the problems and solve them before he introduced the bill. Just like today. Just the opposite <laughs> of <kidding>. today. I <laughs> hear that sound? I'm pretty sure it's his ashes spinning. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so he... How did he get this picture? You have a lot of stuff uh, about him in here. The thing that sticks out to me that I'm looking at is the moon landing. It looks like Neil Armstrong about to step onto the moon. Oh, it's a Buzz Aldrin. Oh, Buzz Aldrin. And the picture was taken by Neil Armstrong. Who's already on the moon, I mm-hmm. see. He's, wow, that's amazing. How so, did he end up with this photo? Okay, so Wayne is a, uh, in fact, a Steve Schulte, who's going to do a program for us next month on um, Wayne Aspinall, has written books about him. I see the book right there. There it is, yeah. And there's a museum in Gunnison that has a Wayne Aspinall collection. And the library in Grand Junction and the Mesa, the university, all had Wayne Aspinall stuff. And when we started, when we had the History Center in the bank building for five years, like seven years ago, the library decided they didn't want stuff, so they gave it to us because we then had a place for his desk and his credenza and the bookcases and his uh, law books and things. And the museum in Gunnison didn't, we've got stuff that they didn't want. And Tilly Bishop, who was a wonderful um, state senator, representative in Grand Junction and had worked with Wayne, had a lot of his stuff. 
In fact, this, um, I'll point to this, there's a letter from JFK to Wayne Aspinall saying, wow, we love this land and conservation bill that he wrote about three weeks before he was assassinated. And there's another letter from LBJ to Wayne saying, yes, we love this bill. And that's the pen and the bill that LBJ signed that the bill got passed. That's incredible. Tilly Bishop was at the Colorado Water Congress in Denver, and they were going to throw it away. And Tilly said, I know someone who wants this. <laughs> well, how did, how did he get the moon landing photo? It was something that none of the museums anywhere else wanted. Because that's the, signed to him, right? It's signed to Wayne. Wow. That's amazing. Um, Tilly and Pat have since passed away, and they had 400 photos, 400 paintings that the art center got. And one of them was this frame from North Dakota. Wayne had gone up there to speak at their event again, about water. And um, some adult had drawn this wonderful painting of Wayne's life. And the art museum decided that they would rather have it here where we have such a focus on Wayne. This uh, is Wayne Aspinall's room. Over does, wait, there, does he have kids? Wayne, yes. How did their kids let that picture, that moon landing picture, get out of their hands? I would sleep with it under my pillow if that were my father's. There's no way I would give it up. They want to honor him and have it here. Mm -hmm. We knows? have great nieces that are donors and have been here and very supportive of um, what we're doing. Over there is a dictionary. I mean, now, you look at your cell phone. It's this That thick. is the biggest dictionary I've ever seen. Yeah, that's like almost a foot thick. And wow. it's signed Wayne Aspinall. And you were telling me we have less words now? <laughs> Did you tell me that before? I don't know. Oh, okay. I, I thought because the dictionary, even an actual dictionary, even though it's very small on our phone now, is much smaller than that today. I, and I wonder if we've just cut you, out half the words in the we're English We're not using language. them, so let's yeah, get rid of them. We lean on a, a few of them, right? <laughs> what are your favorite buildings around town? Like, what are we missing oh. when we're driving through town? What are some of the most historical things? Well, downtown 3rd and Main is uh, has been the center of downtown Palisade for a hundred and whatever years. Where the bicycle shop is, the Purcell building was built in 1903. The Hugus building where the Blue Pig is and the additions were, you know, 1907-1908. The Palisades National Bank building was 1909. So those have been there. There was another hotel and, and office building that burned in 1915, where the plaza is. There used to be a hotel there? Yeah. Really? How Jordan's Inn. Jordan's Inn. Yeah. What was that like? Oh, it was wonderful. It was upstairs was rooms, and downstairs was, oh, the C.D. Smith drugstore and real estate and uh, all kinds of offices and a restaurant. And it, in fact, we've got from the family, Mr. Jordan had gold. And I mean, it burned to the ground. We have pictures. It burned to the ground and people went through the rubble because he had gold. They thought they could find the gold in the rubble. Oh. But one of the things that the family saved were plates, much like the Titanic, un I mean, they're whole. They're not even chipped. Do you have them? Yeah, one. You do? Yes. Have them here uh -huh. in the museum? Yeah. Oh, you have to show me later. That's cool. Okay. What year did that burn down? 1915. November 1915. 1915. It was built in 1908, so it didn't last it very did long. It did not have a long lifespan. But I've wondered how Palisade would be different if that 
building were still there. Because now we have the plaza. There were other buildings that were torn down. We have pictures from the man that was at the CCC camp in 1939 of the wooden buildings next to it that did not burn. So where all the facades used to be wood? No, or? that was a brick building. Okay, they were brick mostly. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. There were wooden buildings next to it, but those got you know done away with. The livery is another interesting building. Um, it burned. <laughs> this is my fire and brimstone tour. <laughs> it burned, and then they rebuilt it. But originally it was a um, furniture and... The Jenkins White Company, they made, uh, under they were undertakers. They made coffins. Coffins. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. What is the building that's right along the train tracks that's now vacant? The Mountain Lion Building. That was the original Grand Junction Fruit Growers uh, Association office. It was built in 1909. The fruit growers, they were in Grand Junction first, and then they built the Palisade one. Um, and that was the offices. West of that, where the storage uh, lockers are were the platforms where the growers would bring their peaches that they would then get loaded into the oh, that storage center that's mm-hmm. like self-storage or yeah. whatever there okay that was uh the loading platforms uh-huh. and then the building was all admin yeah it looks like a train depot almost everybody thinks it is it, it was never it in was our never. Okay. guided in our walking tour brochure you will see that it was never <laughs> never and what would you like to see happen to it because that's I've got to be one. I don't know what what year was that built. Nineteen nine. So it was, it's one of the most historic buildings here. Oh, it's it's a tragedy. The platforms burned in nineteen seventy one, and then um, we had a horrible freeze in nineteen sixty three that killed the fruit. Most peach trees were taken out and had to be replanted or subdivisions. And the marketing cooperative went broke and merged with the United Fruit Growers on the other side of the tracks. So then that building was vacant or it was a residence for a while. And then originally Skip Doty owned it. He bought it and we were going to have the museum there. And then he changed his this mind. This museum was going to be there. Yeah. That would have been fantastic. Wouldn't that be fantastic? He was going to do a year-round farmer's market. Oh. And, and then we'd have space in the in the building. That would have been amazing too. Honestly... Yeah. Any idea would be better than what the situation has vacant. been the past few years because it's just vacant. It's been vacant for two decades, I think. Two decades? Yeah. What is the issue? Nobody wants to work with it? Is there some issue with the town and the permitting? Why is nobody taking advantage of it? Let's see. I think, well, A, it's expensive. I mean, you're going to have to spend a fair amount of money to fix the building up because it's been vacant and the roof leaks and stuff like that. I think that Skip got rid of the asbestos and... The town had, for the last owner, the town set some pretty strict, you've got to do it by in two years. And through the pandemic, that didn't happen. Impossible. And the parking is a problem. I understand the vacant lot where the Rupp's Conoco distributor, whoever owns that now, wants a million dollars for the land and so if you're going to spend a fair amount and you need more parking which that building would need more parking and i don't know who the owner is but that's unfortunate is this something the town could get a grant to purchase to somehow i mean there's a solution if somebody wants to do it okay sounds like you're the gal to do it for us i don't have that kind of money (laughs) no not you personally but we we try and raise money with the grant or (laughs) figure it out because yeah it's just that is one building that I drive by 
most days and I just feel sad when I see it. It's and I just, just look at that with a twinkle and think, man, this could, mm-hmm. and it's not even turning it into, I mean, you could turn it into a restaurant or something that would be cool. Yeah. You could turn it into a museum, anything that just would display. And then again, preserve mm-hmm. that history. You're in this historic building. Mm-hmm. So it's sad. What else do I drive by every day that I don't appreciate? Let's see the distillery, the wooden or the building on Kluge with that's sort of their office was the first railroad depot. It was on the other side of the railroad tracks. And in 1909, when they built the second depot, which is where the, in fact, the the cement sidewalk is still there. And the, the railroad, uh, there are trucks parked there that say Union Pacific and they use it. That was where the second depot was. They, The peaches and, and coal were so explosive that they had to get a new depot by 1909. There were three passenger trains a day that stopped in Palisade until the 60s. From where? From Denver? Uh, well, there were, um, the Zephyr, the which is Amtrak, with the, the dome cars, and there was the Mountaineer and the Prospector. And one of them, it's our History of Railroads book, um, <laughs> you can read, one of them stopped in cameo it i mean it stopped in every town uh, going to denver probably grand junction to denver or maybe salt lake and the other one didn't make every town stop but was uh at night why did they stop it after 1960 the cost to maintain all those depots and and people i think and maybe cars were you know people didn't travel have to travel by train anymore Oh, cars were the new thing. People yeah. wanted to drive. That makes sense. In fact, yeah. that's one of the interesting histories that I learned about Palisade. I mean, in 1890 and 1900, it was horses. And we had 13, uh, and, and, but with the coal and, and um, agriculture, we can count 13 gas stations because there were more vehicles for the uh, agriculture and for the coal mining. I don't think Grand Junction had 13 gas stations. We had 13 gas stations here in Palisade? In Palisade, yeah. In the 60s? Um, They had come and gone. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. But there were two car dealerships. The uh, Twisted, uh, there's an interesting building, the Twisted Brick, where the fruit and wine realty is. Yeah. And art museum. That was a gas station. And also the Chevrolet dealership, Ford dealership. Where the Bricks Bistro is. Yeah, 13 Bricks. That's not the building, but what was there was the Chevrolet dealership. They had a car dealership here. Two. One Chevrolet, one Ford. Was this a hotbed for people to come buy cars, or Um, why would that be? um, Such a high demand. We needed to uh, vehicles because of the agriculture and coal mining. Oh, so a lot of people just Mm -hmm. coming to the area. And now Highway 6, before I-70, that was kind of the main drag yes. to come in. Yep. How did that change Palisade when that all, because you must've been quite a bit of traffic coming through, but mm-hmm. I guess not I-70 type traffic back then. But what was that like? So you would come from the South from Montrose and come up? You'd come from, well, from Grand Junction. And then you would turn right here on Iowa and go through Third Street, through the North River Road to the State Bridge. And then, I mean, early on, I mean, because that was in like 1909, they had that. Early on, you'd go up Rapid Creek and an incredibly difficult road to get to Mesa. 
and then to Debec, you'd get back to uh, at the Debec cutoff. You'd get back to Debec. There was no road from Debec to Palisade. You would go up a separate one through Rapid Creek. And then in 1931, they at least built it to Debec. And, what, what and pe- in 1949, they put the bridge that you now drive, so people didn't go through town. I mean, the bus stop was, well, at the Rock House Cafe next to <laughs> the um, Mountain Lion building. One of the cool things you tipped me off to when I, we met a couple of weeks ago was the that there used to be a bridge from downtown across the river into the orchards. You have a picture of it here, mm-hmm. I remember seeing and so I went and checked it out. When you're driving east over on 6, you go over the bridge where if you cross the bridge and turn right, you would go up to each Orchard Mesa. But if as you're crossing that bridge, you look left, you can see the old bridge the pylons. Yeah. yeah, or the concrete structures yeah. that once held the bridge. Mm-hmm. That was so cool. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. That bridge that we drive now wasn't there, I'm right. guessing. Till 49. And people would live in downtown Palisade and then walk across the bridge to get into the fields over there. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Originally, it was a, a, a ferry and then a suspension bridge. And in 1909, they put the steel bridge in. And so it, it could accommodate cars. Um, but yeah, we've heard a story about Guy and he, maybe he lived on Orchard Mesa and you just came down through the, what do they call it? Horse Mountain? Yeah. You Horse just Mountain. came down. And he would leave his horse and carriage at the suspension bridge and walk over to uh, school and then come feed the animal at lunch and then go back to school and then take it back <laughs> up to that. So how do you make all this interesting? I see we talked about you're getting the coloring books for kids. Have you had any strategies to try and make this interesting for adults who live here? I know that tourists are going to come and they may be interested or not if they are great but how do we get locals more on board with this the events you guys do at an ordinary fellow are fantastic so it seems like i know your backgrounds in marketing right Mm -hmm. so you mentioned earlier you have a low budget marketing uh but that just means it's you doing it i'm guessing (laughs) and i think you guys do quite a good job Um, that event for example is perfect for connecting with people who maybe they need to be spoon-fed history. I think that works a lot when you spoon-feed the medicine and then they get more interested from there. Have you come up with a strategy to try and do that? Your point about that some people just are not interested in history or it needs to be presented in certain ways, and I'm not sure we figured out that exactly. I mean, I've endeavored to write down all of the things that we know into into the booklets, the walking tour brochure, the coloring book, the history of irrigation, the history of coal mining, the history of fruit and wine, the history of railroads. And now we're working on updating the history of Rapid Creek. We've got new photos and new information. I mean, when it was written, our landlord, Kirk Bunty, the family that built this building, and and we are forever grateful for their uh, generosity of, of uh, it's a buck a year lease, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that he wrote it as, Kirk wrote it in, when he was a student at, at Mesa in 1980-something. Well, things have changed. I mean, the freeze in 63 had a tremendous effect. A lot of growers did not replant. Thank God for the men who 
didn't want the highest dollar for their property and would sell it to people who were interested in keeping it agriculture and replanting. The Harrisons have kept Rapid Creek as a, I mean, you still see peaches there. It's not the development that it was envisioned to be in the 80s. Right. So some people today, for example, would just sell it to the highest person, no matter what they're going to do with it. Development like the suggestion or the proposed project project last year. Yeah. That, uh, you know, it was the highest bidder. So these freezes, when you talk about them, maybe I'm underestimating the significance because, for example, back in, what was it, April, we had the freeze, quote unquote, where a lot of farmers were nervous. We had all those fans going. It doesn't look like it did too much damage. A couple of years ago, I remember we had some damage. 2019, there was a lot of damage. The Talbots lost 10,000 trees. 10,000. So it yeah. killed the trees. It killed the trees. Wow. It's uh, When the sap is in the, the branches and it gets to like 19 or below, it snaps the limbs, so it kills the trees. Wow. In 1963, it went from 50. We'd had a warm fall and winter. It went from 50 to minus 20 in a 24-hour period. You could hear the branches ping. No kidding. It was it exploded. It was awful. You have this interesting chart back here too. Yes. I, I remember seeing that. It, I think it's how many rail cars worth of peaches were shipped, shipped each year by the United Fruit Growers, just one of the mar- marketing cooperatives. And it was a thousand. You know, in the big years, it was a thousand, with eighty thousand peaches in each one. I mean, it's millions of peaches, and that was just one of the. And then you saw the chart; it goes from a thousand to fifty-three yeah, in about nineteen sixty-six. What did people do? They sold, and there's a lot of development. All of this that you see houses used to be orchards, or they retired. You know, they didn't want to farm anymore. So it was just a farm killer, mm-hmm. essentially, mm-hmm. and nothing is preventing that from happening again today. No. The one thing that Harry Talbot and Doris Butler, who were on our original Historical Society board, they worked to form the Mesa Land Trust. It's the first one in the country that preserved agriculture land. And so they're, they've got five, six, seven hundred acres preserved, although not all of it is uh, in Palisade. That's the land trust, right? The land okay. trust. But that, that was uh, one of the things that really helped. And that's a big thing, I would think, for Mm -hmm. preserving the history of Palisade if the fields Mm -hmm. can't be developed. The one thing we have going for us, I was talking to another farmer about this on a previous episode, we have cash crops now. So it's it's unfortunate in a way because we push out local food a bit, but peaches are the cash crop. So if you can't change it from ag, you're most likely going to stick with peaches. Maybe Mm -hmm. wine will start to compete as we go further along. That To me, I would see that as the biggest threat to peaches. Well, development... But if they're in the land trust, maybe wine grapes, because they could, in theory, become more valuable. We'll learn from Bruce Talbot on the 22nd at the Ordinary Fellow Winery. Great plug. I'm stoked for that. It's um, be a yeah, talk. I mean, he's going to talk about the past and the present and the future. And the future, I mean, what? why peaches have been successful is because they make money. It's a lucrative, you know, for a while we were growing hops. That stopped. Lavender isn't what it was. Uh, then there was, what's the word? CBD. Uh, Marijuana. The, well, but the other, which, hemp. Hemp. Okay. And 
the price for hemp went from 50 or whatever down to a buck 50. I saw you at the happy camper the other day. Come on, don't play coy. <laughs> don't play coy. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, we were there because a friend wanted to buy some yeah, gummies. Yeah, yeah, sure. A friend, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> nope, not me. That's okay. So, yeah, continue. You. So, but those crops have come and gone. There were 1,000 acres of grapes in Colorado. Now there's 800. And so I'm thinking that g- grapes are not the the pro- as profitable. Well, the trouble is they're hard too, right? They they get killed by the and weather. And they get yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're just as risky. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And but there's really nothing we could grow out here that wouldn't be risky, I would think. Well, we can't grow apples because it's not cold enough. Didn't they start with apples here? Yeah. Is I mean, true? I think they were, uh, my vision may not be true, but I think they weren't sure what would grow, so they planted uh, lots of different things. My grandfather won a medal at the, like, St. Louis Exposition in about 1904 for apples. But in 1923, coddling moth, and they destroyed the apples. In fact, Cross Orchard has some apples. But one of their most expensive costs is the spray for the coddling moth because they they just they they don't exist up in the North Fork Valley because it's colder although their peaches freeze like this year <laughs> so if I were to plant an apple tree in my yard it would most likely become infected yes okay by yeah. the coddling moth mm-hmm. interesting I've heard that before and I'm curious from your perspective so much of history is it's half evidence, half personal recollections. Yes. And as we know, oh. stories tend to get embellished yes. over time. How do you sort through all that? Because you're relying on your own memories of your grandparents and what they yes. tell you. Do you ever hear stories and then say, well, that sounds great, but the oh. evidence we have doesn't really support that? And One of the really famous historians in Grand Junction, Al Look, came up with a story that the roller dam rollers were built in German by, Germany by the factory that invented the roller dam concept and that they were sunk by the British Armada coming to Palisade in 1915 or 1914, the lead up to World War I. So when we did the 100th birthday for the roller dam in 1915, we got access to the Bureau of Reclamation's records. And sure enough, that's not true. The machine and fabric Augsburg AG knew that they really couldn't make the rollers in Germany and ship them here because of World War I. And so the factory in Pittsburgh made them and shipped them by rail. But honestly, there were people, I mean, it's in books, it's in, you know, newspaper records and other uh, writers, uh, Daily Sentinel articles have had, oh yeah, they were, our first coloring book had that story because we published it before we had gotten the bureaus. uh, In fact, that's another major project of ours is getting the tribunes digitized. It was Palisades newspaper record from 1903 until um, it shut down in 2014. And we've gotten 3,400 issues digitized so you can go online for free at the Colorado Historic Newspaper Collection or the Plains to Peaks and search or browse or whatever. You can search a keyword 
Yes. And it'll just so Peach every, Festival and every article every, every article will come up about the Peach Festival that's ever been written. That's a great way to see old photos and see old perspectives. Well, and learn things. Dave Sasuga, one of our volunteers, uh, religiously searches for things. He's found five different names for the hotel that was behind the Palisades National Bank. We only know of three, Purdy, Palisade, and Carolyn when it was torn down. But there were a couple of other names that lasted for a few months with different owners in, in the 50 years or whatever that it was uh, built. Is this a nine to five for you? How many hours are you putting in here to catalog all this and keep this museum the way it is? It's uh, It's been a lot of work. We're trying to, I'm trying to delegate. We need more volunteers. Yeah, what do you need from the community to support um, you in this? Because I think we owe you uh, just an immeasurable amount because... This is amazing. I, I guarantee. I know most of my friends have never been in here, Ooh. and I want to get them in here. Get I think a lot of people here. in Palisade have never been in here. They drive by it every day, but to see the work you guys have done is just amazing. It, so, yeah. how can we support you guys? Um, well, uh, volunteers. We need volunteers for, to, for hosts and to do projects. So people to sit here and greet people as they come mm -hmm. in and be a docent at the museum. Uh huh. And also to well, walking tours. Um, Tell me more about the walking tours. I'm well, really interested in that. I actually might want to throw my hat in the ring because well, let's see. I love guiding and walking. Um, <laughs> I one of our members who lives in Arizona is here for the week, and so I'm giving her a guided walking tour starting at nine o'clock on Thursday. So if you want a guided walking tour, Fire and Brimstone, meet at the bank at 9 o'clock <laughs> Thursday morning. Are these just everybody, anybody can join, you need to sign up? It works better if we have 12 or fewer, but we used to do guided walking tours like during Peach Fest, and for a few years it was successful, and then it wasn't, partly because even if we pare them down a little bit, there's so much to do. There's the gingerbread, and there's the soup uh, stuff and all the booths and things to look at, people don't want to take an hour out of the schedule to do a walking tour. Okay. So we stopped and people at the park, one time we had a really wonderful, an author who was uh, selling her books and also telling people to come up for the guided tours. And so that worked really well, but nobody's been doing that lately. <laughs> okay. Well, are they free? Do they cost? Uh, we like a $10 donation. Okay. But... Um, and you just meet it at a, a street corner, and then everyone goes from there on a walking Yeah, experience. we have three. In fact, we had the, the car tour. Uh, let's see. It's uh, the car that preceded Durant. The Durant car preceded General Motors. And people who have Durant cars meet. And one, two years ago, it was here in Grand Junction. And um, I'm in a band with the, the wife of the owner of the car, and she was planning everything, and she knew about our guided walking tours, and so we had three different tours, and we had 30, 40 people, and of course they came to Palisade, did the tours, and then they stayed for lunch. I mean, we're a tourism. Yeah, uh, how are you advertising creating. your tours to people who come here? On our website and our uh, brochure and... Social Facebook, media? Facebook, yeah, social do? media and stuff. Okay. But we haven't had, at, well, there was a couple that came and they were going to be here on a Sunday and my husband and I did a tour <laughs> for them. Now, I remember when I came in here last time, you had a gentleman dressed in period outfit. Yes. Right? So mm -hmm. that is this um, the different we, itinerary. So yours is fire and brimstone. Fire and brimstone. What and are the his other two? is an hour with Colonel Bauer. 
Okay. He impersonates one of our founding, uh, Dave, um, impersonates one of our founding um, um, people. So he's in full character. In full character. And Gary Hines also does a another route. We have three different routes. Although what you saw was we were dressed up because the third graders, we have to do line of sight. So we just do one route, but we take the third graders and show them the bridge and the the old buildings and um, with the 1910 school and with the fire escape, which in the fourth grade, which was on the third floor, if you got an A on your spelling test, you got to go down the fire escape. Oh, that's fun. It's kind of like the slide in the Palisade Park. At, yeah, know, the twirly spiral yeah. slide. Mm-hmm. So how much, how long do people walk? Is it a mile, three miles? I'm thinking in August, it's probably pretty hot for yeah. people. So are you doing these early in the morning? Um, yeah, we try and do them early in the morning. Mine is like 4,000 steps. I had a cell phone one time that kept track of steps. but So it, mine is the longest uh, route, and it's a little bit over an hour, like an hour and 15. Okay. Dave takes a long time. His is just up uh, 3rd Street, but he goes into a lot of detail, and you go into the slice of life uh, and look at where it was a theater it was the alberta theater and you look at the stairs up to the projection room and it's so, so cool a lot of fun things are there any ghost stories uh i'm not um we can't verify ghosts so i'm not so you draw the line there. i really think that's you know it's sort of like the oral histories where isn't true <laughs> you don't believe in ghosts i uh, no, i don't Have i mean you? i've not seen them I could tell you there's three or four people in around town who insist they've seen ghosts, but... Have you ever been on a ghost tour? No. Never? No. Never interests you? No. Really? No. Interesting. Yeah. I've been on a couple, and I will admit they are interesting but frustrating because inevitably the guide or whoever, they tell you all these stories about this person who saw this and this person who saw that, and I saw this, and there was a penny left and blah, 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 whatever... And I'm like, well, if they're so everywhere, I want to see one. Why aren't they coming to see me? But a lot of crazy stories about ghosts, too. But you're not into it. Okay. No, I, I wonder. I would think. I mean, I'm in a house. My grandmother passed away in the house. You'd think that I would be seeing her ghost if there were ghosts. But Nothing. Yeah. I just feel like ghost tours are a good spoon feeding mechanism for history because oh. you get them excited about some kind of ghost story. It's at night. Maybe it's some candlelight tour where a guy's oh. in character mm-hmm. holding up a lantern but then you're mixing in actual history yeah you know here's this building but then here's also some tall tale ghost yeah. story of something that happened could be an idea for you you know you never know uh i don't know we're trying to promote history okay and, <laughs> and facts and and although it is interesting the things that we've had to change as the tribunes and things have come that have like the roller dam that have just changed oh okay yeah, are you always amending what you have here yes. and making updates? Yeah, I've I've tried really hard not to spend a lot of money on permanent displays that, <laughs> oh, no, that's wrong. Yep, got to change it. And Well, because we also are only 13 years old in the scheme of things. I mean, uh, and, and when we do things, we find new information. And the oral histories, you mentioned those. Those are interesting. For ours, we recorded oral and video histories for a while. and You did? Yeah. With people from around town? Yeah. Really? We have a couple dozen that we have done. They're on our website. Okay. But we've summarized them. We haven't done, we didn't do the, you know, the video and, and actually 
people became not interested because they didn't want to be seen. You know, they were older and they don't look like themselves or whatever. Right. Uh, and interesting, we gave the recordings to the families or to, you know, to them and they've come back like the, they didn't want to keep them. But we have the summaries on our website and where we found like one lady could not remember when her husband passed away. Well, that's something we can. So we put factual things in and some of them we've had to, you know, just X out whole things. But what's a what's a daily routine for you? Are you literally waking up and just all day sorting through these documents and just being like, okay, found this out. And how are you keeping track of all this? Or do you, is there a method to this? To this? The, yeah. I mean, I think we do museum practices. The We've worked closely with the museum in Grand Junction and, and, you know, we have a numbering system and spreadsheets and boxes that, you know, we store stuff in or displays. Right, but are you waking up in the morning, coming over here and going through boxes? Is that... I should. I'm okay. not. <laughs> we could use volunteers that could do that. Yeah. We had a wonderful high school intern who put displays together for us and sorted uh, the photo stuff and, and helped with some some of the you know, less exciting yeah, if, <laughs> paperwork I, I stuff. I mean, hopefully you get volunteers from town, but... If not, if you need more people, I think it'd be interesting, too, to try and do a partnership with history majors at uh, CSU or something and say, hey, you want a little internship? Come on over. And and they'd be really excited about history and hoping to build a portfolio. We have a um, good relationship with the university, but that's not something that they've offered because there are two or three things I would love to have an engineering uh, guy. Um, The atomic energy has the the cabin, the museum west of Grand Junction that talks about the uranium in, in Grand Junction. And they have this cabinet and you push buttons and the things light up where the mines were, where the processing plants were and stuff. It cost $50,000. But it's the government, you know, they can afford it. I'd like to have a cabinet where you push buttons and the irrigation districts light up. Oh, that'd be so cool. Because that's, you know, people take irrigation for granted. I mean, they don't understand the the challenge, the unique, the, the heritage, the difficulty. They just turn on their faucet, you know? Oh, yeah, that's it. That's all we do. We take advantage of pretty much everything these yeah. days, I think. It's yeah. all become so easy for us. Mm-hmm. We are, ice comes out of our fridge, not from Grand Lake. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you a quick story. Okay. When I'm making that university suggestion, Uh, Oh, yes. My buddy, he wanted to redo his house, Mm. to redesign it. He was a single guy. He had just gotten divorced. The house was blank when his wife moved out, and he didn't know what to do. He didn't want to spend a ton of money on it and just have it look terrible. He didn't want to hire a professional designer because whatever, cash. And so he contacted the local university and contacted the School of Interior Design, reached out to a professor Uh and said, hey, I have this project that I... I'm trying to complete. I was curious if you would like to offer it to your students as some kind of extra credit or just as a platform for they can make teams come over and bid on it. And then I'll select the design team that I want and then they'll implement it and I'll pay for all the materials. And the professor went for it. Oh, yeah. So he had three teams of students come to his house, take in his house, present their ideas for how to design it and how to decorate it. 
he got to select the winning team and then they came over and implemented it and it saved him a lot of money. The students got experience. Oh yeah. So I just tell you that story because the university hasn't offered it, but perhaps if you reached out to the history department and said, Hey, let's create some kind of fun thing. Actually they have Aspinall's desk that was in Washington DC because it has a metal tag with the number, you know, the, which government numbers everything as well. And they paid to ship it back to Palisade wow. or Grand Junction. Anyway, they have Aspinall's desk. So the, the history professor, she came and brought her a class, and they looked at the museum, and they were so struck with the Aspinall room, they recreated it in the Tomlinson Library with their actual desk, and they got a typewriter, and they got bookcases and stuff, and photos. I gave them copies of the stuff that we had, and, you know, had a big event that was there and showed it off, and so... It's just yeah. so cool to see the smile on your face and the way you say this. It's so obvious, your passion for this. Yes. Do you feel like you're running out of energy on this, or where do you oh, where do you see your role going? Well, from I have a. Uh, I don't want you to think this is just me. I mean, there have been a great group of a core group of of board members and volunteers that have. Uh, Joan Forey is a volunteer. Um, she's been here. She was in the history center for years, two or three years as well. But she's a host here twice a week. Uh, Tuesdays and Saturdays, and Dave's here on Thursdays, and then we have additional people that come in, you know, and help, but they're the primary ones. And two of our board members do Fridays, and I mean, there's there's groups of volunteers. It's not just me. One of the things that I think I am is an implementer. I take people's ideas, good ideas. I, I, I'm able to sort through the bad ideas and implement good ideas. And I, I worked for a guy one time, and he said, okay, the quadrant. There's good idea, good implementation, bad idea, bad implementation. And a good implementation of a bad idea is much better than a bad implementation. I mean, so that's a great I, way to think about it. Yeah. Um, and he, that's where you see yourself. He as, had lots of um, ideas, and I... I implemented the good ones. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I know we got to wrap it up soon. It's getting to dinner time, but I just have two more questions for you. First, what do you play and where can we see your band? Oh, I play in the Sentimental Journey Band and Alan the Polka Dot Band. They're just community bands. What do you Um, play? I play tenor saxophone in the community band in the Sentimental Journey. Uh, We do exciting things like, well, the the parade, the Veterans Day Parade, we're on the street in Grand Junction for that. We don't, we're too old to march. (laughs) (laughs) And we play a lot of nursing homes. Okay, Um, that's so nice. And the Allen the Polka Dots, we're a big hit at the Catholic Church in Grand Junction that's in downtown. They have us uh, for a polka sort of uh, event that they do and nursing homes. So, (laughs) but it's kind of an irregular schedule. Are you playing traditional songs? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and I play alto sax there because there's no tenor sax music. But mostly my my goal is to stave off Alzheimer's. You know, when when your brain cells are working extra, like you're learning something new, and maybe the history, historical society is (laughs) helpful for that, but you keep your brain active. and, And with music, you're looking at the notes and you're hearing, and then you're also moving your fingers, and that that keeps the synapses 
from getting Alzheimer's. That's Priscilla, my... I think your synapses are doing great and just fine. <laughs> I actually played saxophone growing up. Did I you? I couldn't tell you whether it was What'd alto or tenor, but I played in the seventh and eighth grade band. And we played Linus and Lucy, these kind okay. of songs, yeah. whatever. I don't, I don't really remember. Mm -hmm. But we also played at nursing homes because uh -huh. they would bring in the student band to perform oh, sure. to them. Yeah. And I remember one performance that was really horrible for me. We played the song, and at the very end where everyone holds the note, you know, to kind of end it out. I, for some reason, right when everyone stopped, just let out a huge squeak on the saxophone. Okay. And it was one of those moments where everyone just turned and looked at me in the band and the audiences. Oh. And uh, it was pretty embarrassing for me. Yeah. It really kind of was a moment where I was like, wow, all right, I just really embarrassed myself. Whatever, you shake it off. But That's I just, when you told me that story about the nursing home, that was the first, I was like, oh, I remember I squeaked yeah. at that performance. Well, I think we're so checking fun. out which ones we want to go to or don't want to go to when it's our time to be there. <laughs> it's a great instrument, Sax. It's so nice. Oh, yeah. What got you into it? Uh, well, my dad played um, saxophone. Um, he had a lot more talent than I'll ever have. In the 20s, he had a C melody saxophone and played Dixieland jazz okay. with some famous people. So anyway, growing up, just assumed and my brother played alto sax so I played you know from the fourth fifth grade actually I started on soprano because my fingers I wasn't very big and I couldn't but I wanted to play tenor saxophone I like the counter melody so I played in the Palisade High School uh, junior senior high school band and then I was at the University of Denver and I played in their concert band then I didn't play for 25 years. And then when I moved back to Palisade, Marilyn Veselak was the chamber president and had her husband was the uh, band director at a Holy Family School. And so I got back into, we had a Palisade band for a while. And then uh, I've been in the Centennial Band, but not lately. And then Sentimental Journey. Guess what our opening song is? What? Sentimental Journey. Okay. <laughs> And was it right riding a bike, just picking it back up again? And yeah, I mean, it's it. it yeah, it came back. I mean, I uh, I can't brag about my musical talents. Have you ever played in jazz and impro improv bands and things like that? No, more mm -hmm. traditional just stuff. Uh, concert bands. Yeah, and playing in college must have been pretty competitive. Have you ever seen the movie Whiplash? I'm not sure. You should watch it. Okay. It's I don't know the actors. I forget, but it's the story of this drummer who goes to a famous school in New York, which I'm also forgetting, Julian or... Juilliard. Juilliard. Yes. And you're in the school, but you're also competing to be in the different bands throughout the school. And then when those bands go on the road to play, people are scouting them to be part of orchestras. Wow, yeah. And the story is about this super aggressive teacher who believes that the only way to make the next superstar is to to break you essentially to the point where you go through this like really tough training and then you have to experience that failure then to come out on top. So talk, it's, it's amazing. I don't want to say too much because oh, okay. I don't want to ruin it for you, okay. but Whiplash. Whiplash, okay. It's a pretty shocking movie and also okay. really good about concert band competition and stuff. Interesting. I really like it. You should check it out. The band director at the University of Denver, I mean, we had no football team. So, you know, there was no marching band. I mean, I was the, I was the drum major at Palisade High School. <laughs> You were a drummer. I was the drum major, you know, leading the, the marching band. Okay. Oh, yeah, it was great. We didn't have football at DU, so there was no marching band. And so it was just a concert band. 
and he did not like saxophones. So there was really no competition. And saxophones are not like orchestras don't have saxophones. And, um, you know, if you go to Aspen, the music festival, there might be one concert every other year where there's one piece where there's a saxophone. I mean, they it's not a... Anti-sax, huh? It's, and um, so, I, yeah, I was... Uh, I don't know. I can't remember if I was the only tenor saxophone player, but but there might have been another one, but it was was not... I didn't... I would not have won the competition. <laughs> All right. Well, let me know when you play at the brewery because I want to see you there. Oh, Maybe no. you guys do okay. some kind of historical music uh, event or something oh. like that where we can play like the old time songs of Palisade. And I don't know. I'm just making this up. But it would be cool to, you know, you have a passion oh, okay. for music to incorporate it. We've approached the Palisade. We played at the Palisade Nursing Home, whatever they call it this week, um, a few times. But with the pandemic, you know, there was a lot of you know, nobody could go in and do stuff. And I've talked to the um, activities person. And so we might, we might be there. All All right. Keep us updated. Okay. And my final question, I hate these kind of questions, but I'm going to do it to you anyway, because why not? What is your favorite piece of memorabilia in this museum? What sticks out to you? I have to pick one. All right. Give me a couple. Oh, that is a toughie. I mean, it's that's the thing about Palisade is it's there's so many wonderful things that were done and uh, are part of our history. Oh geez, that is a toughie. I have to think about that. Okay, you get I back mean, to us. I mean, for me, having gone through this once. Yeah, what's your? What did you like best? Well, I love the moon landing photo just because okay. it just evokes something in me. Uh-huh. And the fact that it was, I just imagine if that was sent to me, just how special it would be. Uh-huh. And to be honest, I don't see too many pictures of moon landings floating around. So that's just no. really cool. Mm-hmm. I liked a lot of the, well, the, t- the two um, cash boxes you have. Oh, yes. Cash, cash registers. registers. Yes. Unbelievable. I mean, uh-huh. talk about an antique. Mm-hmm. I would love to have one of those in my house. I think they're so cool. Oh, okay. I really like the peach displays you have where it shows some of the counter boxes and then how they used to sort them and those things. That's a very hands-on thing you can Mm -hmm. see. And then um, I think you guys did a really good job just of your displays. The board here with all the yearbook photos in it, Oh, the Pal- the Palisade High School senior class photos yeah. from 1903 to... We're trying to get up to the 2000s. I could use a volunteer who has Photoshop skills. Gail Madden, who is just this incredible artist. There's so much of her work here. I, I have burned her out. <laughs> she did 70 years of those. And then all of the the banners and all of the things that that just make it look you know, professional. Yeah. She did. This photo too, I really love. Oh, this okay. The, the Gerhardt Mine. The Gerhardt Mine. That's, uh-huh. That's, you're essentially on Mount Garfield there, yes. right? Looking yep. down and you can see the, that's the roller coaster track. Yeah. Or, and that picture was taken in 1980. Some of that debris still remains up yes. there, right? Yeah. Do people go up there to check it out or is that unsafe? Yeah. Um, I mean, although, um, unfortunately, that is the mine that I think three teenagers from Clifton went into and died. Oh. I mean, they've closed them off because there's, in fact, 
some of our newest things are air quality monitoring that were used in local mines. One, to make sure that there was enough oxygen, and two, to make sure there wasn't methane or, you know, something else. But, yeah, the mines have been closed. In fact, Bennett Young did that. Uh, he explored the mines as a youngster living here, and then he got master's degrees in mining, geology, and then he worked for the department of whatever that closed off these mines so that they wouldn't be a danger. But And somebody's been cleaning up the stuff at the bottom. There used to be more of the the wood things and, th and, and it's disappearing. You can see it when you're driving west on I-70 for about 1.2 seconds between the, the rocks. And the bottom of it, I mean, the top of it is probably more visible up there. But from the interstate, a lot of the stuff has been taken Clean, away. Cleaned out. We have a photo. One of the newest, the one of the owners of the mine gave us a photo of uh, the building at the bottom when it was in the ni early 1900s. And now all these photos, like if someone wants to come in and they're just interested in mines, can they just say, hey, I want to see all the mining photos you have, and you would pull them out for them? How does that work? Can people request to see certain things? Yes. I'm a little, let's see, I don't know, the, probably some people who've run up against this would have a description of what I am. But I'm very cautious about copyright. I mean, we've had people put our photos up on their websites for sale. Oh. And yeah, and so I I really am cautious or they use it for things and don't involve us anymore. I mean, I'm That's theft. I I think so. It is. Um yeah. and so I share pictures but I, and I'm probably not a good judge of <laughs> I I think everybody is honest and open and and that's turned out not to be the case, but I you know, we share photos as long as we're not as they assure us they're not going to use them for things that we don't know about or sell them. I mean, I have not done T-shirts or postcards or things because, for one thing, I know that the copyright is still active with the Mountain Lion brand. Oh, you the mean Sal's. the old peach boxes yes. marketing? That's cool, too. In Isn't the bathroom that? here, yeah. how you have all the old oh, peach yeah. logos from all the different companies. Mm -hmm. That's really neat. Although I also, Dixie Burmeister has been very uh, helpful and supportive. And she has shared that, you know, when they do like T-shirts and stuff, then they have a pile of T-shirts somewhere that they have to give away. I mean, guessing what people will will buy, what sizes, what, you know, postcards. Totally. I mean, what is it of interest? Because as you pointed out, different people are interested in different things. Right. People may come here on a certain platform looking to learn about a specific thing. Honestly, I think the best approach is just to come with an open mind and see what jumps out at you. And I think you could visit a museum with that mentality many times and always something new would hit you. I don't know if you have any advice for people that come, but that's what I've learned over my travel career. Just go in and don't worry about absorbing every little thing and just see what sticks with you when you walk out the door. And then come again a couple of weeks later and see what sticks see what's out to new. you this time. Yeah. And just let it go through mm -hmm. you like a sponge. That's, uh, that's very good. We have surveys and ask people what, the, and so far we haven't really gotten, Oh, it was awful. Um, <laughs> I would hope not. I mean, yeah. um, we've had people come in thinking it would be hokey because it's a small town mm. and they're blown away. I mean that we have letters from presidents and, 
photos of Buzz Aldrin. Yeah, on the this moon. is not a hokey museum. This is not a hokey this museum. Is a seri- That's what I'm saying. It's it's clear that you've put a lot of work into this, and we owe you a lot of gratitude for doing it and wow. for serving the history. And well, so I appreciate you spending this time with me oh, and for well, sharing your thoughts on all this. Thank you. I'm going to check out your walking tour. I'm all excited. Right. Yeah, I can't wait to do it. And thanks for all you do for the community. Oh, thank you for having me, Priscilla Walker. Thank you so much.